What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, Donald Trump in Paris. There's something wrong with that picture. Greatest city on the planet and the worst president ever in history. What are the two of them doing together? I don't know. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we are on a Friday. No, I'm sorry. It's a Thursday. Thursday. Well, you know what it is? It's July. It's the 13th. So, right? You think of Friday the 13th. Sure, sure. Sorry. So it's an easy mistake to make. All right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not quite. No. <laughs> All right. Not quite. Can we start again? All right. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? It's Thursday, July 13. Good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. Here we are. It's the Bill Press Show. Good to see you today with uh, lots going on. Yep, the president taking off last night. He is in Paris because he was invited there by uh, President Emmanuel Macron. I don't know why. Uh, to help help the French celebrate Bastille Day. Uh, let me tell you something. If my friends in Paris are any um, indication of what the French people think about uh, Donald Trump, uh, he will not get a big welcome there, except maybe from Macron. But I don't know. Uh, but not the not the French people for sure. Meanwhile, back here at home, he was glad to get out of town. I'm sure because here, uh, the uh, uh, the only thing everybody's talking about still. Uh, is that incredible email exchange leading up to the meeting with a top Russian lawyer linked to the Kremlin to talk about getting providing his campaign, Trump's campaign, with dangerous or uh, just um, incriminating evidence against Hillary Clinton, which the Trump campaign was only too eager to get that help from the Russian government. That continues to dominate uh, the news and our show today. Uh, we want to hear from you. What do you think about it? Is it guilty as charged? Send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. We'll dive right into it. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. This is scary. In Antarctica, a giant iceberg has broken off. It is the size of Delaware. My home state. Your home state. Not a... Let me tell Gigantic you, a per- state, but also... Story. No, I was going to say, Delaware's not the largest state, but, you know, it's not the smallest either. That's Rhode Island. Right. And Delaware's pretty big. There is, uh, as I told a friend of mine last night, there's a northern Delaware and a southern Delaware. No. Yes, there is. 
It's big enough. Lower uh, Delaware, they call slower Delaware. Slower Delaware. <laughs> really? Yeah. Slower Delaware. I grew up in northern Delaware, but we had a house in southern Delaware. Is southern Delaware where Wilmington is, or no? No. Oh. Look at Bill. <laughs> no. Do not step to Bill on Delaware. That's pretty far north. There's Clayton. I'm messing Clayton with is above uh, uh, Wilmington, <laughs> but it's almost to Philadelphia. The point here is that <laughs> there is an iceberg the size of Delaware that is floating around the Antarctic. I know. That's pretty scary. It's pretty scary. Now, scientists were quick to point out this might not have anything to do with global warming. They say that uh, fake science icebergs sort of. <laughs> break yeah. off all the time. And they did point out that this will not impact sea levels because it was already floating. Already floating. Yeah. So, but not already melted. See, no, I don't... There, there, I, are I people don't. Who, so, so there are people who point out like this particular area of Antarctica yeah. has been touched by global warming. Like yeah. The ice yeah. has been yeah. melting. Right. But scientists can't immediately just say this is because of global warming. So, yeah, let me tell you something. Right. See, I'm over at Fenwick Island in Rehoboth and I see this big... Iceberg, the size of the state floating in, right? Yeah, I don't care what causes it. It's pretty, con- pretty. You know, it's a little re- concerning. Yeah, I agree. So uh, they're they're having to reroute ships. They're tra- making sure that people don't hit it. All that type of stuff. Got the quick story. Uh, Might have flown under the radar earlier this week. Democrats scored two electoral wins on Tuesday night in. Oklahoma. Michael Brooks Jimenez, a local immigration attorney, was elected as new state senator for District 44. And Karen Gaddis, a retired school school teacher, uh, took over a seat in Tulsa's House District 75. So just more wins for Democrats. It was another Democrat versus Democrat race. Yeah, yeah. Or was it? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, 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 no. These no. are two Democratic wins. Sorry. Two Democratic wins, right? Uh, that's cool. In Oklahoma. Thank you. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Hey, what do you say, everybody? Great to see you on a Thursday. Here we go, right in the middle of summer, Thursday, July 13. It is The Bill Press Show, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. But we are there with you everywhere in this great land of ours uh, on uh, YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show on Free Speech TV and Coast to Coast also uh, well on Free Speech TV and YouTube, Coast to Coast and out in the greater Chicago area on WCPT. Check out our podcast every day. You go to BillPressShow.com and join uh, all those who listen uh, later in the day to the podcast to pick up anything you might have missed in that morning show. Good to see you today. Lots to talk about. Yes, indeed, uh, most of the news still swirls around uh, uh, that fateful chain of emails that Donald Trump Jr. released the day before yesterday, trying to get out ahead of the New York Times, which had planned to release them, uh, was going to release them until they got held them back only until they had a comment from Donald Trump Jr. Emails that show that he knew what the meeting was all about. Uh, He went ahead with that meeting, uh, and we know the results. The result is collusion with the Russian government. We'll see uh, what what conclusion Special Counsel Robert Mueller comes to. Meanwhile, Donald Trump giving an interesting interview yesterday on the 700 Club with Pat Robertson, where he said that uh, Vladimir Putin would much rather have Hillary Clinton in the Oval Office than Donald Trump. 
uh, because Donald Trump is so mean and so nasty and so tough. Uh, a new nominee for the FBI. We had the first look at him yesterday, Christopher Wray, who says he was not asked to take any loyalty test and the president asked him to do anything illegal. He would first try to talk him out of it and then resign. Those are all the uh, story, big stories that we'll be following here with you today. Where do we start off? Let's start off with, uh, yes, Donald Jr. again. Because what's interesting about this now, first of all, is uh, <laughs> you, you, you got to admit, the silence of, of congressional Republicans about this is just stunning. It is crickets, 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 crickets at all. And you know, and as we said yesterday, it, it's, it, we're, we're all getting tired of playing this. If Hillary Clinton had been in the White House, or if Barack Obama had done this, you know the impeachment hearings would already have started. But here you go, the son of the president of the United of the candidate of the candidate for president taking a meeting with glee with Russians who want to interfere in our election and Republican members of Congress saying, Oh, yeah, well, the poor kid, you know, he was just a newcomer to politics. Or, yeah, this is under investigation, so we don't want to say anything about it. Mm, we're going to, we'll, we'll just let Robert Mueller decide what happens. Uh, oh, man, they are such cowards. They are really running for the hill. But here's the new twist uh, on these emails that we've learned, which is the, the timing. Okay, now remember, the chain of emails and... Um, Let's just remind you, there's no doubt about what this meeting was all about and what the meet and, and what the um, emails show, because on June 3rd, so when the first email exchange occurs, I'll read it to you again. This is the one from Rob Goldstone to Donald Trump Jr. says he's got some information. Quote: This is obviously very high information he wants to get to Donald Trump. Quote, this is obviously very high-level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. That's on the 3rd of June, a little bit later, just 17 minutes later. Donald Trump Jr. rushes with this email response back. If it's what you say it is, I love it. And by the 6th of June... They have set up this meeting with this attorney with uh, very highly connected to the Kremlin, uh, this woman attorney who flies from Moscow to New York for this meeting at Trump Tower. On, so June 3rd, first email exchange. June 6th, they set up the meeting, which takes place on June 9. On June 7, Donald Trump, not junior, Donald Trump, the candidate, goes down in Florida, and he says basically, because um, it was June June 6th also on which he wrapped up whatever state it was to give him enough delegates that he was going to get the nomination. So June 7th, he gives this sort of victory rally, uh, goes down in Florida, and he pro makes a promise that he's going to deliver something, deliver the goods on Hillary Clinton very, very soon. Here he is. Now, again, emails June 3rd, clinches a nomination June 6th, June 7th. 
I am going to give a major speech on probably Monday of next week, and we're going to be discussing all of the things that have taken place with the Clintons. I think you're going to find it very informative and very, very interesting. All right. Now you tell me that Donald Trump... What does that mean? Yeah. Donald Trump, obviously, isn't it clear he had been told by his son, Daddy... Remember that, uh, okay, just all the pieces here. This information comes from the guy, a guy in Moscow whose son is a rock star who appeared in Donald Trump's Miss Universe contest. And the man himself, the father, was Donald Trump's business partner in Russia. So just ask yourself this question Donald Trump Jr. gets an email from the guy who represents the son of Donald Trump's business partner in Russia and says the father had a meeting in which he was told there's some really dangerous, damaging information here to Hillary Clinton, and we've got to get this to your father. How shall we do it? And Donald Trump Jr. again says, we'll have this meeting. I'd love to have this information. He doesn't call the FBI. He just says, yeah, let's have this meeting. Now, we're supposed to believe that Donald Trump, this is what they tell us, that Donald Trump Jr. said nothing to his father. Again, he gets an email saying that your father's business partner got all this information from the Russian government. Your father's business partner wants to get it to your father. We're going to send this woman over here to provide you this information if you'll have this meeting. And we're supposed to believe that Donald Trump Jr. doesn't tell his father I don't believe it for a second. No way. Especially when you hear that clip, right? Let's play it again, Jamie. This is that what what is Donald Trump referring to except what he's been told is coming from Donald Trump Jr. I am going to give a major speech on probably Monday of next week. And we're going to be discussing all of the things that have taken place with the Clintons. I think you're going to find it very informative and very, very interesting. I mean, boom, boom, boom. Connect the dots. Right, exactly. It's it's, it's hardly evidence, right? But, But you put it all together, you look at what we know about the Trump family, which is that, like, Donald Jr., Eric Trump... Uh, uh, Ivanka, they all have their jobs because Donald Trump gave to them. They're all very close. They yeah, all work yeah. very closely together. There's no way. And Donald Trump is a control freak. Exactly. That's why he there, tweets. There, there's, just not, there's just no way right. that this happened without Donald Trump knowing about it. Right. There's so no way. People are, so people are starting to put the, again, it's Mark Warner, uh, the Democratic ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee from Virginia, said yesterday, we're starting to be able to connect the dots, and this is one one big step in that direction, what we saw yesterday. Um, the other thing I think that uh, sort of uh, the people are starting to uh, to put together here uh, about this whole, uh, the latest in, in the Russian flap, and the denials that just, I mean, there was a year of denials from everybody. I mean, Mike Pence, Kellyanne Conway, Hope Hicks, Paul Manafort, Donald Trump himself, Donald Trump Jr., they all denied there were any meetings at all 
with the Russians. And then we found out, oh, yeah, actually there were some meetings on the part of a good half a dozen people, on the part of Michael Flynn and Jeff Sessions and Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort and Carter Page, and now we know, and Donald Trump Jr. So there are a lot of meetings that were going on. Uh, and then we were told the lie about this meeting, which didn't happen, did happen. This meeting where they talked about adoption, and then we find out, no, 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 they really did talk about Hillary Clinton and damaging, damaging information. And then we were told, well, they didn't know ahead of time what the meeting was all about. Now the emails come out, and we know exactly what it was and who it was with and what her connection was, and that she was part of the Russian government's attempt to undermine the election and help Donald Trump win the election. Now, so when you add that, that is collusion. There's no doubt about it. That is a conspiracy to get something done, which is probably illegal. That's the loose definition of collusion. We gave you the, the official Merriam-Webster definition yesterday. But that's not the only front on which Donald Trump is in hot water. Think about the, what we've talked about the last few weeks with Donald Trump. Let's go back to the, and we've had people in talking about this, the emoluments clause, right? I mean, this says that as president, you, well, as a federal official, you cannot take money from foreign governments, certainly unless you ask Congress for permission to accept a gift, which some presidents have in the past, and they've usually been given that. Donald Trump hasn't, and he's got his businesses right now, particularly this Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., but not only that, because he hasn't divested from any of his businesses. He's got hotels all around the world where everybody who, every drink that people buy in, that, in, the, in those hotels, every room that is rented, uh, for any kind of public event or anybody who stays overnight in those hotels, part of that money goes into Donald Trump's pocket still because he owns those businesses. And in Washington, D.C., his hotel down here suddenly on Pennsylvania Avenue has become the new place where if you are a foreign dignitary and you come to Washington, you have to stay in that hotel so the president knows you're there and you can tell him you're there. If, you have, if you're some big organization that wants to influence this administration and you're having an event in Washington, D.C., you've got to schedule your lunch there or your reception there or your conference there so the president knows that that's where you're meeting and you can tell him when you see him. And if you're a government agency even and you're scheduling something, uh, where do you schedule it now? The Trump Hotel. Uh, the latest is the um, State Department. The State Department had a little uh, a little conference. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Just, just uh, they needed 19 Drain the rooms. swamp. Yeah, this was uh, up in Vancouver. So um, where would they go in Vancouver? To the Trump International Hotel and Tower in Vancouver. $15,000 to book 19 rooms uh, at the Trump Hotel uh, in Vancouver. Do you think they got a government discount? Hell no. They're paying Donald Trump. You know they're paying him top dollar. This, Donald Trump has turned the White House into a great big ka-ching, ka-ching money-making machine. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, 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 the conflicts and the, uh, the um, evidence thing that he is breaking the, the law and, in this case, violating the Constitution, I think, is overwhelming. So on that front, we got the Emoluments Clause. 
where there are two ongoing lawsuits, one by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington for violation of the Emoluments Clause, and the other by businesses, well, the attorneys general of the District of Columbia and the state of Maryland suing uh, the Trump empire because they're, by, by attracting all of this foreign money, they're hurting other businesses in Maryland and in the District uh, of Columbia. All right, so there's the Emoluments Clause. We got that. Now, then, there's a second little legal front here. Uh, does anybody remember obstruction of justice? Oh, yeah, that's still going on. That's now maybe the principal focus of Robert Mueller's uh, special counsel and his investigation. Did Donald Trump break the law by trying to shut down an investigation of his own administration? Uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that he did. We haven't talked about that in a few weeks, but we know we know what he told the Russians the day after he fired James Comey. We know he called James Comey into the Oval Office. Comey has testified to that and said, can't you get rid of this? Can't you shut this thing down? I mean, you're being too mean on Michael Flynn. Can't you just drop this whole Michael Flynn thing? And Comey said no. He fired him, and the next day he told Sergei Lavrov and Sergei Kislyak in the Oval Office, boy, I got that monkey off my back. And I had to get rid of Comey because, you know, it was just, he was just, he wouldn't let go. So, I mean, again, evidence of obstruction of justice and a criminal investigation on the part of a special counsel underway. So, two legal fronts, emoluments, obstruction of justice, and now we got the third one, which is collusion. And all the evidence we've talked about that collusion, uh, at least from those emails, at least there, there's the intent on the part of Donald Trump Jr. to allow the Russians to interfere in the elections, to help them interfere in the election. And it wasn't just Donald Trump Jr., remember? He invited Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort to sit in on that meeting. They were on the email chain. They knew what the meeting was all about. They went to the meeting. So I think there's a, 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 I mean, again, I'm not an attorney. I'm not the special counsel. I think there's tons of evidence on the part of all three. So on three legal fronts, I would say right now, from all the evidence that we've seen, Donald Trump is guilty. Violation of the Emoluments Clause, guilty of obstruction of justice, guilty of collusion. The question is, when is a hammer finally going to fall? Right? And, I mean, who's going to be the one to drop the hammer? And who's going to – that's good. Yeah, who's going to be the one? I'll tell you one thing we know for sure. <clears throat> Republicans in Congress are not going to drop the hammer. No. I, I, I think right now there's nothing that Donald Trump could do that would cause Republicans in Congress to break from them. Look, I mean, we, we know how this is going to play what, out. What we saw what he did during the campaign. We saw the horrible things he did and said during the campaign. <laughs> and it didn't stop them. Nobody, I mean, really backed away from from Donald Trump. There are some people who said they weren't going to endorse him, but they were going to vote for him, which yeah means you're endorsing him. So, and like, there's nothing that he's going to do or say short of shooting somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue that Republicans wouldn't line up to support. There's just nothing. 
So if you're waiting for the Republicans to save you and for them to find their spine, it's like, it's we talked about this yesterday. The, the whole video is up at our YouTube page, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show with Alan Pike about yep like J- Morning Joe leaving the Republican Party, which is cute, but like they've enabled this. They made sure that we got to this place. They did nothing to stop it, and they're not going to do anything now. So. And by the way, you said short of shooting somebody. No, I would say including <laughs> probably shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue, uh, as Don Trump said. And meanwhile, again, we talked about the silence, uh, the ca- silence of these cowardly Republicans. Um, nobody weaker in this whole front, I believe, than uh, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan yesterday, he was asked, "Well, how about you now? If you, if somebody called you, right, from a foreign government and said, I've got some, I got some dirt on your opponent." Would you take that call? And and here's how he ducks it. I'm not going to go into hypotheticals only because I think it's important that we get to the bottom of all of this. Uh, As you all know, I supported Bob Mueller being appointed special counsel. And I think we need to let him and his team and our investigators here do their jobs and follow these leads wherever they may lay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, and at the White House, of course, the the loyal staff, they're out there uh, on every front. uh, Well, at least the media outlets that will allow them on <laughs> still uh, on every front defending their boss and defending Don Jr. They did nothing, nothing not wrong. Kellyanne Conway on Hannity last night. Don, Don Jr. was on Hannity the night before having a little fun, little word game here. No collusion. What's the conclusion? Collusion? No, we don't have that yet. I see <laughs> illusion and delusion. So just so we're clear, everyone, four words, conclusion Collusion, no. Illusion, delusion, yes. I just thought we'd have some fun with words. Uh, Sesame's Grover word of the day, perhaps, Sean. Uh, yeah. Some fun with words, yeah. How about uh, <clears throat> uh, how about just <laughs> obeying the law, right? <laughs> Maybe let's, <laughs> let's, let's start there. Uh, I, uh, by the way, one interesting thing, we, um, it's the latest on that front. Two other important, just quick notes. Uh, Christopher Wray, uh, the president's nominee to be the next uh, FBI director, actually looks like a straight shooter. Uh, he did very. He, he did a very good job last night, uh, yesterday afternoon, in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. I thought, um, and he did say he uh, was asked, "Did you take any loyalty oath, Christopher Wray?" No one asked me for any kind of loyalty oath at any point during this process, and I sure as heck didn't offer one. And what would you do, Mr. Ray, if the president uh, asked you to do something illegal? First, I would try to talk him out of it. And if that failed, I would resign. Uh, I, know, I know that Democrats have lined up to say that he seems like a good guy. I just don't trust him because he's taking the job from Donald Trump. Well, that's the that thing. That might be my problem, and I, and yeah, I own that. Yeah, but right. like, I, I, I think the him. overall question is, I, I do believe him, but then my question is, why would you take the job? Yeah, But he's a Mueller guy, too, right? He is a Mueller guy. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and he did. He did a couple of things I thought were were, were pretty significant. Um, on the question, remember Donald Trump again just yesterday said this whole Russia thing is still the biggest witch hunt ever in history. Uh, does Christopher Ray agree with that? I do not consider Director Mueller to be on a witch hunt. And do you think, what about your thought about James Comey, Al Franken, ask <laughs> the key question? And you don't think Director Comey is a nut job, right? 
uh, that's never been my experience with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So breaking with Donald Trump on those two points. Comey, not a nut job, and Robert Mueller, not off on a witch hunt. Okay. Okay. All right. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, well, you know, uh, people have been critical about Donald Trump because uh, he hasn't been willing to face the tough White House press corps. He hasn't been willing to take tough questions. He just goes on uh, Fox and Friends where they love him and he he knows he'll be treated with kid gloves. Uh, Yesterday, he finally uh, changed course and was willing to sit down with a really tough journalist. Yes, yesterday, Donald Trump sat down with Pat Robertson, host wow. of the 700 Club. It's hard to believe that Pat Robertson still has that show. I know, right? man. Yeah. Right. And, um, oh, man, I, he it, it, it was really, you can just hear Pat just grilling him. Uh, basically, it was just Donald Trump talking and Pat, Pat Robertson listening. Where do we start? Well, um, if Hillary had won, right, Donald Trump says, this whole thing, the, his main point of the interview was, that the whole idea that Vladimir Putin was trying to help him win is nonsense because Vladimir Putin would much rather have Hillary in the Oval Office. Yeah. If Hillary had won, our military would be decimated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our energy would be much more expensive. That's what Putin doesn't like about me. (laughs) And that's why I say, why would he want me? Because from day one, I wanted a strong military. He doesn't want to see that. Mm -hmm. And from day one, I want fracking and everything else to get energy prices low and to create tremendous energy. Uh, Yeah. And he said, of course, again, Putin would much, much rather have preferred Hillary. There are many things that I do that Mm -hmm. are the exact opposite of what he would want. So when I keep hearing about that, he would have rather had Trump, I think... Probably not, because when I want a strong military, you know she wouldn't have spent the money on the military. It's such nonsense. But it does remind us, though, uh, of what what uh, an outstanding journalist uh, Pat Robertson is. I mean, Pat Robertson is so persuasive. He is so good. He could even sell you pancakes. Oh, I forgot about this. He could. They're so fluffy. They're so delicious. They melt in your mouth. They're fabulous. Learn how to make protein-packed, age-defying pancakes. That's from forever ago. Protein-packed, age-defying pancakes. That's the secret to his longevity. He is an expert on pancakes. He is also an expert, did you know this, on facelifts. Maybe Mika Brzezinski should have talked to him. Oh, that's right. She was bleeding very badly. Uh, Because uh, this is a way back machine, too, when he was talking about our friend, Greta Van Susteren. You know, there's a lady named Greta Van Susteren who's on Fox. Yeah. Oh, I saw her. She looked gorgeous last night, but she had a really serious facial deal, and it did a wonder. uh, Sister needed help. The sister sister got she hell, needed some help. But, yeah. she, but she got it, and she just looks great. Yeah. And she's but have you popular. ever seen someone who got it too much, and so they come oh. up to you and they're like, hey, how are you doing? Yeah, it's well, so good they, to see you. they got the eyes like they're, they're yeah. oriental, and, and uh, <laughs> oh, you know, no. they, it's all pulled. Oh. So make sure you do it right. But uh, oh. it's uh, that's one way you can go, but it'll cost you five or $6,000 probably. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it'll cost you five or 6000 I, I happen to know. I've had a couple. <laughs> Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, it's so well, good they, to see you. They got the eyes like they're, they're <laughs> oriental and, and uh... <laughs> oh, there it is. Uh, the, the, oh, boy. I forgot yeah. about that clip. Yeah, that, that pair. They're made for each other. They really are made for each yeah. other. Donald Trump 
and uh, Pat Robertson. Congress. Get some breakfast. Gonna, Do you want some pancakes? I'd like some pancakes. Protein packed yeah. pancakes. Congress. Going to get anything done? Uh, what is going on down there? And what is happening with some of our um, old manufacturing city centers in this country? Our good friend, uh, Congressman Dan Kildee from Michigan, uh, joining us next here on the Bill Press Show. Learn how to make protein packed, age defying pancakes. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. All right, on a uh, Thursday, Thursday, July 13, uh, good to see you today. The Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, coast to coast on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show, on Free Speech TV, you're looking good out there in TV land today, and also, of course, out in the great Chicago area on WCPT. Or our, uh, here on our, we're here in our studio on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today by Amalgamated Bank. Yeah, you want to looking for a bank you can be proud as a progressive to do business with. That's Amalgamated. For almost a century now, they've been the bank of choice for progressive organizations and uh, individuals nationwide. You too, no matter where you live in the country, can a bank at Amalgamated. Go to Amalgamated dot Amalgamated Bank, Amalgamated Bank dot com. Speaking of uh, great progressives, here he is, Congressman Dan Kildee. Live and in Michigan. person. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Congressman, good to see you, uh, especially on a day when and a week when there's no news happening. Not much going on. Yeah, slow yeah. out there, you know. Yeah, it yeah. is kind of slow. Actually, probably go in, have coffee, and just hang out in the office today. <laughs> Actually, we do have a little bit of breaking news right now. Uh, Peter, you've been checking? Yeah, so uh, this is a story about this is the news update. You want to do the Kushner story? Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, from McClatchy. uh, Pretty damning story about Jared Kushner, who has his hands in everything at the White House. He's the the secretary of everything. He really is the go-to person. Wait a minute, (laughs) but he's going to bring peace to the Middle East. Yeah, right. I'm just going to read the I'm just going to read the opening it's not paragraph the weekend yet. to this to this <laughs> McClatchy story. Investigators at the House and Senate Intelligence Committee committees and the Justice Department are examining whether the Trump campaign's digital oper- operation, which was overseen by Jared Kushner, helped guide Russia's sophisticated tar- voter targeting and fake news attacks on Hillary Clinton in 2016. In other words, all of those attacks that we saw online, all of the fake news stuff that we saw generated, did Jared Kushner help point Russia to vulnerable areas where they could use a little help. The Trump uh, campaign could use uh, a little help. And let me get your reaction, Congressman, but first point out that the same Jared Kushner attended the meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and this attorney right. from, from, uh, from the, not from the Kremlin, but from Russia who, with ties to the Kremlin, at which meeting was set up for passing on uh, allegedly very damaging information about Hillary Clinton as part of what is the phrase? Yeah, it, as part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. So when you add those two together, is this serious stuff? It's dead serious. In fact, when I saw the email, I thought if somebody were to make it up and sort of oversimplify what it is that they were offering and put right in 
this is part of the Russian government's effort to assist Trump. I mean, it's almost like they didn't have to say it, but they put it right there in black and white. It's it's real it's real trouble. And of course, the the problem I think for all of us is we have to just stop listening to what the Trump team says when they respond to these. Let's just let the investigations go forward, get the facts, knowing that every time something like this comes out, they're going to have some sort of answer that twists the facts or changes the facts or basically another obfuscation. And all they really care about is the that, that it gets reported that way on Fox News and that the 38% of the people right now who still think he's doing a great job, the 85 or 84% of Republicans who give him an approval rating, that they're going to give him, you know, a green light to continue to do what they're doing. Oh, they've lied about everything. They've lied about the fact that there were no meetings and they're like, well, yeah, there was a meeting, but we didn't talk about politics. And, we, oh, yeah, we did talk about politics, but we didn't know ahead of time what she was coming for. Then we see the emails and we know that was a lie. I mean, it's just one after another. I mean, zero credibility. Yeah, it, it's sad. I mean, to use a... Trumpian term. All right. now you, He's the one who invented the word, by the way. That's right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a great Sad. word. Say it's that. a very good word. It's one of the best words. <laughs> right. uh, and he invented it. Right. Yeah. Sad. Um, There's a lot sad for sure. All right. So you've, you've, you've a successful candidate. Um, you're uh, running for office and you get a call from Russia or maybe it's Venezuela or maybe it's Egypt. Right. I don't know. Uh, our government has some really dirt, dirty stuff right on your opponent. We want to we want to meet with you and dish all this dirt. What do you do? You call the FBI. I mean, you do what Al Gore's campaign did in two thousand. You call the FBI. You don't take it. I mean, it is so much a part of what anybody who's done this that I've ever been associated with. I've been in politics myself for forty years. It's beyond comprehension that you would take that call or take that meeting. Take that meeting. I mean, yeah. even if you, uh, even if a person is not bound by any ethical constraints, the first thing you would think is someone is setting me up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just as a matter of self-preservation. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it's beyond the pale. Okay, and, and they try to create all these false equivalencies. They are the best. <laughs> Uh, manufacturers of false equivalency that you've ever that you've ever seen. Well, everybody does it. No, no, nobody does it. Well, that's right. the thing. They've moved. They, they talked about this yesterday. They moved the goalposts a little bit to like, oh no, 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 no. They were not trying to undermine America. They were specifically going after Hillary Clinton. That like, for them to for this to be treason or collusion or whatever, there would have to be a. Uh, specific intent to destroy the electoral freedom that we have here in America, the whole process, which they just don't get. They just gloss right over. No, 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 but it was Hillary. Yeah. Which is silly. So I want to give you another scenario. Yeah. So let's say you're running for office and you're, um, and before you, and you were a very successful businessman and you had a business partner in Moscow and you tried to put up a hotel, didn't work. You had a big, uh, uh, Miss Universe contest over there. Uh, and, except for the Miss Universe, you've actually described my career. Okay, good. Right. But you've been very successful. So then your son now is running your campaign, and your son gets an email from your business partner, the guy that you tried to build this hotel with, and your business partner has found out some information about Hillary Clinton that he wants to get to your father, right? This email comes to your son, and your and your son says, oh, here's Daddy's 
business partner with this stuff. Yeah, of course I'm going to meet with this person he wants to meet with. Meet, to meet with. So do you tell your father about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah. The of idea course. that they have created this firewall between father and son is just laughable. It's laughable. But, you know, that they what? just believe that if they can say words in order, uh, no matter what those words mean, no matter truth or false, they get to just say it, and that's it, and we're supposed to just accept it, and it's fake news if you disagree. Right. So now the emails have set up the meeting on the sixth, uh, on the 3rd of June. Donald Trump actually sews up enough delegates to win the nomination. He'll, he, he hasn't, he's not the nominee yet, right. but officially, but he, he's got a, on the 6th of June. The meeting is going to take place on the 9th of June. <laughs> on the 7th of June, the day after he sews up the delegates, Donald Trump gives a speech down in Florida where, do we have that, Jamie? Yeah. Where he makes a promise. I am going to give a major speech on probably Monday of next week, and we're going to be discussing all of the things that have taken place with the Clintons. I think you're going to find it very informative and very, very interesting. Now, where'd that come from, right? Prescient. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He just right. has an unbelievable yeah. and uncanny ability to yeah. predict the future yeah. of the next years. Or they had a meeting with the Russians. <laughs> yeah. Or or he knew they were going to have a meeting yeah. with the Russians and it was going to be a lot of right. lot of hot stuff in there that he could throw out. The, you know, he can't have obviously he can't have it both ways. He can't describe himself as a masterful hands on manager of every detail of every organization that he's involved with. But then when it comes to any wrongdoing, that's the one time yeah. that I wasn't involved. Whoop, just yeah. the one time that I wasn't a part of the conversation <laughs> is when we met with the Russians or you know, whatever it might be. How lucky uh, is so, he, man? Just yeah. happens to keep his hands uh, clean there. So when you look at this, I mean, there is still the ongoing uh, lawsuits over uh, the emoluments clause. Right. right? Blatant conflicts of uh, interest there. Um, there is still a special counsel investigating obstruction of justice, uh, and now you have collusion. Right. And 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 the, I think the FBI and the Senate and House Intelligence Committees are looking into that. I mean, so emoluments clause, obstruction of justice, and collusion. Where does all this lead? You know, it, it's hard. This, this is one of those times where people ask me this all the time. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how this thing plays itself out, except that they're not going to change, and the facts are going to come out. I, I don't have any doubt about that, that, that the investigations in the House and the Senate, um, Mueller's investigation, they're going to be able to subpoena documents. They're going to be able to subpoena bank records, probably, mo almost certainly, uh, the tax records of Donald Trump. All of this is going to come out, and the facts will speak for themselves, and you know, I, we, we haven't seen a lot of it. The circumstantial case and the anecdotal data that we've seen, these emails, build a pretty strong argument uh, that, that, that they, I don't know if it's the level of criminal behavior, but they lie about everything they do. How it, how it ends is really hard to say. Uh, yesterday, two of your colleagues, Congressman uh, Brad Sherman from California and uh, Al Green from Texas, introduced articles of impeachment. Are you on board? You know, I, I'm taking a different approach, to be honest with you. I think it's really important that we, as I said, 
let's let these investigations reveal the full story. Because we don't, if, if there is a cause for impeachment, uh, and I don't know that there is, but if there is, it will be revealed. Like I said, these facts are going to come out. And this is more of a tactical question, I think, as, as Democrats. When there's chaos within the Republican Party and chaos in the White House, and they are essentially self-immolating without our help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean right. this is happening. With, well, this is these are un, uh, sort of unforced errors that they're they're doing. This is not because we're forcing them into this stuff. Right. My view is we have to focus on order, on chaos, and an agenda, and talking about the things that we will do when we are in charge to show the contrast between the chaos and the deception of this administration and what has now been a Republican Party that, for the most part, is wrapping its arms around this oh, guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the alternative, which is a party that's willing to advance an agenda that really affects the things that people think about every single day, putting their kids through college, having a decent retirement, having a decent home, living in a community that's safe, having wages that allow you to live a decent life, when I go home, people do talk about Trump and Russia, but mostly they're talking about the same th- same things they were talking two or three years ago. So let them self-destruct and Democrats do your job. And, and, and I think getting what, ahead of that may actually be <laughs> counterproductive so for the what country. So what would it take for Republicans in Congress, when you talk to them, I'm sure, a lot of the time, what's, what's it going to take for Republicans in Congress to say, all right, I had it, I can't support this guy anymore? I think some of the Republicans that will be focused more on principle will come to that conclusion because they think it's right for the country. Maybe a bigger number will come to that conclusion when suddenly their interests (laughs) are threatened Mm -hmm. by him. Right now, there's a lot of folks who are willing to go along with all this stuff if it leads to a big tax cut for the people at the top. I mean, let's be clear. Their agenda is not complicated. Mm-hmm. It's to cut taxes for the people at the top. That's what they're focused on. There's a lot of other stuff that they talk about. As long as Donald Trump is on board and they can hold together a majority, the one thing that we think you know, health care is going to be hard for them to thread the needle on, you know, uh, anything really complex will be. Big tax cuts for the folks at the top is a, a broadly held view on the other side of the aisle. And as long as Donald Trump's on board and will sign the bill that they send them on that, they're going to hang with him. He's the ticket to getting to he getting is. that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, right. Can, can, I, I, can I ask a, a, an unrelated question really quickly? Because this is a story that came out yesterday that I have to ask you. Um, in Michigan, there might be a new candidate for senator. Kid Rock. Kid Rock. Kid Rock has said that he is serious about running for Senate. He put out, there's a Kid Rock for Senate the campaign slogan up there just says, are you scared? Which, yes, I am scared. <laughs> to be perfectly blunt, I'm kind of scared. Uh, is Michigan going to vote for Kid Rock? I, you know, I saw that, and he's teased it, and he hasn't really announced it yet. Um, Who would he run against? Debbie? Debbie, Debbie Stabenow. Stabenow. Yeah. You know, and he's been all in with Donald Trump. He's been on the Trump train. Yeah, he's yeah. in the Oval Office, I think. I saw a photograph of him in there. So, you know... It, stranger things have happened recently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> I would, you know, I don't, I don't see that uh, as a. Who knows uh, whether he would become a serious candidate? I've never heard him articulate a coherent policy, uh, you know, point. 
By the way, I, I do have a list of like, possible. Like Donald Trump? Like, yeah, that's, that's, the, the website has a couple of possible slogans. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the party. I'm not making these up. I'll rock the party. You never met a politician quite like me, which I thought was yours. I, I yeah. That's terrible. He took that. He stole me. it. Uh, get in Senate and try to help someone. Huh. That's creative. <laughs> in Rock We Trust oh. and Party to the People. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, well, keep us up to date on this uh, yeah, emerging I will. campaign. Will you? Yeah, now, you've uh, made a little news lately talking about um, helping American cities, right. which, by the way, a lot of people are looking to cities and states right now as that's where the action is and that's where the chance to get anything done is, right? For sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so tell us about it. Well, you know, I was really surprised when I got here, of the many surprises that I faced, to, to learn that there was really not a lot of energy or coherent discussion around the, the fate of American cities. Cities are the drivers of economies. You look at the history of the world, it's where innovation occurs. We are dependent on really interesting, productive cities. But there's a whole subset of American cities that are so anchored to the floor of the ocean that a rising tide will not raise them, even when we have economic growth. And mm. it's Flint, it's Cleveland, it's Buffalo, New York. Industrial cities. And older industrial cities. They're, they've lost population. They're making. They're having a very difficult time going from the old economy to the new economy. The people who live in those places, number one, deserve to have a government that recognizes that even when things are good, it's bad for them. Number one. And secondly, if we're going to have an economy that actually works, we've got to get these cities moving again. And there is no real coherent federal policy to support the redevelopment, the reinvestment in these older cities. This is the work that I was devoted to before I came to Congress. Mm -hmm. And so my goal has been, to number one, to sort of daylight this, to point out the disconnect between federal policy and our stated American values, where we believe we ought to have these places all, you know, um, working and, and creating opportunity for folks, and the terrible state of, of many American cities where we have increased poverty, blight, abandonment. Well, what does this mean, federal grants to these cities? or You know, I think in part it would mean new dollars to invest. It also, though, I think would would really focus on how we spend what we do right now. And, and it, this is, it, it's where we get into policy. If, if, we can, like, if we went big on infrastructure, for example, there's a good chance, if we don't do this right, if we don't recognize the unique needs to rebuild the existing infrastructure in these older places, that what we could end up doing is pour a lot of money into infrastructure investment that is a more efficient magnet to draw more and more people out of these older places into emerging and, and you know, successful communities and reinforce the disparities mm -hmm. that exist in this mm -hmm. country. As opposed to uh, what we ought to be doing. Yeah, right. so it's, it's a long versus short-term notion. Reinvesting in the existing built communities, even though in the short term it's more expensive. It is. It's harder. But in the long term, the return is so much greater, both in terms of social equity uh, opportunity, but even the, the long-term impact on the total cost of government is much less when we find ways to rebuild in those really beat up old places. It's not intuitive, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's actually the smarter way to go. So that's I, really the focus. I think if you were, um, if you ask people, the number one example 
of a city that is will maybe never come back has fallen so far. They'd say Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a city that had almost 2 million people and now has about 700,000. And, and driving through Detroit, I've only been there once, but I was just appalled by yeah. you know everything boarded up. It's you know. it's a massive city with a and lot a of beautiful abandonment. location. I mean, it could be yeah, and, and once was I think, and, the, and the dynamite city. Th- there's but. some energy coming back into the core, but those neighborhoods need to be to be rebuilt, and in some places, um, maybe to take some of those built neighborhoods and make them green and beautiful again. But there's a, a whole set of strategies that we know can work, but just need some support. We need a federal government that at least starts with the notion that these places matter, and it's it is a legitimate federal interest whether or not these communities are succeeding or failing. Because we pay we pay the price of their failure, and it's a much smaller price to pay to find ways to reinvest in those places. Right. But if you look at some of the uh, most innovative programs and ideas today. They're happening uh, you know, at city levels across the country and, uh, and in state legislatures, For particularly sure. where they're Democratic governors. No question about it. I'm just it. thinking about Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles, an outstanding mayor. You know, Pete, remember Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana? I mean, I talk to a lot of my incoming uh, colleagues who have come from <laughs> Democratic majority <laughs> state legislatures and are now here and I ask them how they like it, and there's a lot of frustration because in state government, they were actually able to get some things done. My, my view is that at some point in time, we're going to have a chance to enact policy. I mean, it's going to happen. We'll be in the majority at some point in time. And if we don't begin to create what is really a thoughtful and really serious agenda around these big questions, the opportunity may come and go, and we will not have done much. We've been in Democratic majorities where we haven't really created a coherent urban strategy in the past. I'm not going to let that happen again. At least for me, the most important thing I can do from a policy standpoint is infuse the conversation with ideas about how you rebuild these older places because they're out there. Yeah. Uh, I want to I want to direct you to one possible source that may have some uh, ideas in there for you. Uh, and that is the California Urban Strategy. It was adopted by Governor Jerry Brown mm. uh, his first time around uh, when uh, uh, he, he signed it. It is still the official policy of the state of California, and the thrust is uh, that for all n- new development should, first of all, go into existing urban areas yeah. and, um, and rebuilding parts of those urban areas that had that's down. the and smart that's where the strategy. Investment ought to go yeah. before there's any more expansion into crop plan. Exactly. Yeah, and you you might check that out. I and will. The uh, author of the urban strategy was the director of the Office of Planning and Research at the time, namely Bill Press. Have you met the man? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard about this guy. You know the problem? He drinks. Uh, and if I had a copy of it right now, I would hand it to you. But uh, no. Fake so. news, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> That's no. I did not we were, know that. No, we were uh, right on right on point way back then because in California we had that problem. You know, people. For sure. Yeah, just but particularly there, the problem was expanding out into the cropland and you know putting all this stuff out there and leaving these cities behind. For sure. My home state's a really good example of this. We were growing our land use eight times faster than our population. 
Now, what that means is you grow the cost of government without adding taxpayers to support it. Right. And that, yeah. you know, yeah. doesn't sound like a democratic thing to talk about, but that's, that's reality. Mm-hmm. That means we dilute resources and don't provide the kind of help that we really and, need. And to. you got your population here, and then you got your people who are forced to live yeah. know, way out here. Yeah, right? where you now have to have a fire station, a police station. You have to have all the stuff of a civil society. And you got to have that. have to have it over here, too. And you have that commute, yeah. you know. Back and forth with all of those, it's those not costs. Sustainable. So. All right. So uh, you're onto something. I there. am. I'm going to have to find this Bill Press fella. <laughs> <laughs> so it lives. Jerry Brown. <laughs> right. Hey, great to see you, Carl. Yeah, good luck with you. this project Thank and you. also keeping track of all of this nonsense on Thank the White House. I like your approach. Um, Thank you. Good to see you. And uh, we will be right back and talk about a very important issue about protection for people with disabilities in this country. How real is it? This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? Donald Trump off to Paris, leaving the Russian mess behind, at least for a couple of days, he hopes. Good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. It is the uh, Bill Press Show. We are here in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., but we're joining you everywhere in this great land of ours. We're with you coast to coast, all the way from Washington, D.C. to San Diego, California, or up to Seattle or to Portland, anywhere. Uh, we're here and all those great places in between. All around the world. Oh, and all around the world, I should say, too. On YouTube, on uh, Free Speech TV, uh, and it is so good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. As always, we will bring you the news of the day, but we count on you to tell us what you think about it. So uh, don't leave the uh, Twitter account to uh, Donald Trump. You take advantage of your right and ability to tweet as well um, by sending us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Lots to talk about today, and in this half hour, we want to get into um, the rights of the disabled here in this country, and uh, is this administration and is this Congress doing enough to protect those rights? And with us in studio, Jani Lair-Stein is a disability rights advocate, and it's nice to have you here today. Thank you. Nice to see you. Thank you, Bill, for inviting me onto the show this morning. All right. We'll get right into the issues here. But first, we always let Peter this give us a headline. The full the court press. All the big stories making news. All right, so you know what I hate looking for is parking in the city. Washington, D.C. 
can be kind of hard to park sometimes, but it's not the worst in the nation. The worst in the That's nation. That's why you take the metro. That's why you take the metro. <laughs> the worst in the nation is New York, and I'll tell you how we know this. The transportation analytics company, company INRIX, put out a study that found that on average, U.S. drivers spend 17 hours per year searching for parking. That's average around the country. 17 hours. Yeah. New York? 107 hours per year is spent looking for a parking spot. Now, they did the math. That comes out to cost at a cost of $2,243 per driver in wasted time, fuel, and emissions. Put it all together, $4.3 billion in cost to New York City as a whole per year. Washington, D.C. is on the list at number three. 65 hours out of every year. You know why that's insane? Mm. It is driving in New York. Driving in New York is crazy. Yeah. I mean, why? I've never done it, and I I never will. I haven't either, never will. Right. Same thing. Yeah. Good luck, fi- good luck finding parking around Eastern Market, by the way. Uh, Probably, if we just looked at Eastern Market, it, DC would be a little higher up on the list. Yeah, true. That's true. Uh, Pope Francis has introduced a new pathway to Catholic sainthood. This is very interesting. Mm. Now, to maybe I can make it after all. <laughs> that's right. Uh, <laughs> to, to, to get sainthood previously, you, you had to be, could be a martyr, live a life heroically of Christian virtue. Uh, or uh, having a strong reputation for d- religious devotion. Yeah, that martyr part was uh, always hard to... Uh, it's a little hard, yeah. yeah. It's a hard price to pay. Well, right? he's introduced a new pathway. This is for uh, people who, quote, freely and voluntarily offer their life in the face of a certain and soon-to-come death where there is a close relation between the offering of one's life and the premature death of one who offers it. In other words... To give your life to save the life or lives of others could put you on the fast track to sainthood, which is not something that was previously in there, but Pope Francis thinks that's something that we should have. I don't know what he's up to, but... Donald Trump's still not uh, becoming a saint. Still (laughs) nowhere close to being qualified. Still nowhere (laughs) close to being qualified. Speaking of Donald Trump, uh, next week will be a big week for Stephen Colbert. He will be broadcasting live from Russia. He will be broadcasting from St. Petersburg and Moscow all of next week. He says he was asked to go to Russia by an acquaintance he knew from the Miss Universe pageant to meet with an individual who might have information helpful to his show. Wink, wink. So he's going to be broadcasting live. I wonder uh, if he's got to have that this rock star that the oh, Donald Trump had at the Miss Universe contest. Yeah, Amy. right. I bet he does. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Make it a Thursday, July 13, and here we are, the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us for our roundup of the news of the day, the important issues of the day. Uh, here in Washington, D.C., is where we're located, our studio in Capitol Hill, booming out to you live all across this great land of ours, coast to coast. On any platform, all part of the Young Turks Network on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on Free Speech TV, and out in the Chicago area on WCPT. Thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to hearing from you uh, on your comments of the uh, news of the, of the day. 
Uh, the Supreme Court picking up a very important case on disability rights uh, and continuing um, efforts on the part of the Congress and the, uh, and the administration, one hopes, uh, to making sure that disability rights are really being recognized and taken care of in this country. Uh, but it wouldn't happen without uh, uh, the constant uh, pressure, perhaps, and, uh, and influence of strong disability advocates uh, around the country, one of whom, um, one of the leading ones joining us in studio this morning, Jenny Larestein. Um, your organization is the... Uh, right now, mm -hmm. I consider myself to be a member of the public advocating for the rights of Americans with disabilities, but I, I am a past uh, servant to the Obama administration, was appointed by President Obama to two terms on the National Council on Disability, and have served as a disability policy advisor for the Hillary for America campaign, as well as serving on the boards of disability rights advocates, the premier access litigation firm in the country, and the foundation fighting blindness. I remember when President, I believe it was President George H.W. Bush, right, who signed the American Disabilities Act, uh, correct? Yes, yeah. Yeah. almost 27 years ago, coming this July 26th. Really, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, what changes did that bring? Did you consider that positive legislation, and what changes did it bring about, and how is it, how is it working today? The passage of the Americans with Disability Act was a watershed moment for the 59 million Americans who live with the challenges of disabilities and their supporters, their caregivers, their loved ones, their families that seek to ensure inclusion for them in every aspect of American society. 59 million. 59 really? million Americans, one in four women, almost one in every two families is touched by disability. Now, the passage of that act in 1990 was the culmination of decades of what is truly part of the civil rights movement, perhaps the final frontier in the civil rights movement. And so the passage of that act guaranteeing protections, support to Americans with disabilities so we could be full participants in society was an incredible moment in the history of this country. Mm -hmm. Since that time, we have seen steady progress with a great deal of work yet to be done, but each administration since the passage of the act has built on those freedoms, including uh, an act which amended the Americans with Disabilities Act to ensure that those protections remain strong until today. And, um, you know, when people think of Americans with the phrase disability, I think they think of people in wheelchairs, right? I mean, and, and we're so limited physical access. Now, I want to get to the point that's, that's not that's not all 59 million but even for those people that that, that act did make a big difference like these these uh, curbs on sidewalks right wasn't wasn't that part of the thing or access to ba accessible bathrooms and office buildings and elevators and all of that all of this was part of what the ADA brought into law for us and you're right when you say that the 59 million Americans with disabilities are not only people in wheelchairs Disability refers to Americans who deal with challenges that are brought about by uh, birth, injury, illness, or combat. Um, and it includes mobility disability, mm -hmm. sensory, as in my case, I'm a blind American, 
or sensory in terms of hard of hearing or deaf Americans, and also intellectual disabilities, learning disabilities. So some people have what we refer to as invisible disabilities, and the mm. ADA protects all of us. Right. Uh, I had never heard that phrase before, indivisible. Right, right. But in, in terms of physical um, access, right, um, or, or what are some of the changes? Like I mentioned these curbs. I see that all the time, and I, I keep thinking back to George Bush, right? It wouldn't happen, wouldn't, wouldn't be there without that. that it's an that interesting law. point that you raise because disability is perhaps the most bipartisan of all issues. Disability can happen to anyone regardless of age, race, gender. It, it doesn't matter. And so this is an issue which impacts every American. And the curb cut is perhaps the most humble and yet the greatest example because when that curb cut first became a topic of discussion way back when the ADA was in its infancy, there was a lot of pushback against it. People objected because they were worried that it was going to disrupt their towns across America because they were worried about the cost and because they didn't want to change hmm. the landscape of their towns and cities. But now the curb cut is everywhere. And who uses yeah. it? Everyone. Right. Yeah. No. Women with... Uh, Push baby strollers, right, and everything. You know, you just—it's part of the landscape, right? right? So perhaps the, the message idea that there, people would object to that this is, is, is almost unbelievable. You know, it's, it's, I was talking to somebody else about this the other day in a, in a different setup, a different scenario. But like, you look at sort of what Barack Obama did as president. It was a very inclusionary presidency, right? Like, there was made sure to address and acknowledge. Um, disabled Americans and minorities and was very sort of inclusionary, brought people in. You're part of the American dream. We can't do this without you. And I really don't get that sense from Donald Trump and his administration. You know, like there's a very sort of, it doesn't matter if we address this or, you know, like I think about the Ramadan dinner that they didn't, they didn't do, they didn't acknowledge, didn't address, hasn't been done in years. Uh, it's just like they could just discard and and not even address people like that. Well, yeah, you, uh, I, I was going to ask you about that because you you said that every administration, Republican or Democrat, since 1990 has 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 stepped up and and paid attention to the rights of disabled. Until now, you said that. So I wanted to ask you, what did you mean by that? Until now, do you do you sense a change, as Peter indicated, or is it too early? I think it's probably too early to tell what is going to happen with the disability community and the current administration. Uh, we have a tremendous momentum that has come off of the, the great mm -hmm. work that occurred during the Obama administration, as you mentioned. What we are referring to inside the community now is the inclusion revolution. Well, President Obama's hiring of more than 100,000 Americans with disabilities into the workforce. Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act, which... Uh, encourages federal contractors to include 7% of disability hiring in their companies. Hmm. Many other pieces of legislation which have dramatically improved the lives of people like me, someone mm -hmm. with a disability, and all of those others who live with the challenges of disabilities across the country. Today, we have a tremendous opportunity to encourage that forward momentum. And time will tell whether that forward momentum will continue. But we are hopeful at the same time, of course, the disability community and all of our supporters and loved ones are working very hard to be sure 
that the current administration understands that we have a tremendous amount to contribute to this society. And with inclusion, we are ready and willing to step up and do our part to be part of the American landscape. What um, provisions or um, are included, or are there any, uh, positive or negative, in the proposed repeal of Obamacare by Republicans? What impact would that have? There are some very serious concerns that the disability community has about the two pieces of legislation that are currently in discussion, uh, in particular the Senate proposal, which I believe um, is something that that Americans with disabilities and and really any American um, should be taking a very serious look at. As you, I'm sure, are aware under Obamacare for the first time, pre-existing conditions Mm -hmm. were uh, a topic that were not only seriously discussed, but also uh, provisions were made so that someone like me with disability uh, would be able to obtain health care in the same way as any other American citizen. Now, with the two bills that are currently under discussion, that provision is at risk. And at equal risk are the cuts and caps that are being proposed for Medicare. Medicaid, Medicaid, which which protects 75 million Americans, including mothers and young children, seniors, people with disabilities, and people who are low income. These provisions are critical to people with disabilities, and lives will be lost if those cuts are made. So it's very important for everyone who is interested in a fully inclusive America to speak out and say no cuts, no caps on Medicaid to include pre-existing conditions and whatever bill proceeds or changes are made to the Affordable Care Act and to ensure that we have the same protections as any other America who is seeking to live in this country, raise their families, get an education, and enter the workplace. Yeah, I mean, the, the, Senate, the, the Senate bill, they say, well, we, we have not cut the pre-existing, the, 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 the pre-existing condition requirement. It's there, it's still in the bill. But they would allow states to opt out. And, and, and states could say, no, you can sell insurance plans in our state without having to um, recognize or cover people with pre-existing conditions, which guts the entire program. You're completely correct. So the, the fact that states can omit essential care for people with disabilities is going to have a very significant impact on anyone with a pre-existing condition. And it's equally important to recognize that those who are vulnerable and need this kind of essential services will then be at the mercy of either not obtaining the medical care, the the wellness that they need in order to live and thrive in this society, but also in imposing costs on their families, their loved ones, or just not be able to handle their their health issues at all, which will further impoverish this country and make life difficult for everyone. Right, and the Medicaid cuts, uh, again, um, you know, that, okay, we're not touching Medicaid, but the states could under their program, uh, and you know, uh, and and they would not. There would be no Medicaid expansion under under the bill, and then states could cut the existing program. Unfortunately, true again. 
The Medicaid expansion program had been showing substantial success, including in many states where there previously had not been a lot of benefits that were available. So the fact that that will go away will be very significant in many states. But the, the impact here is so real and it's so critical for many, many Americans. Just this week, two young mothers from Louisiana, they call themselves the Louisiana Trach Mamas. One is a Republican and one is a Democrat, traveled from Baton Rouge to present their stories. They are young mothers with infants who have very complex disabilities. And if their Medicaid is cut, mm. these children will not survive. So we're talking about life and death for Americans. It's a very serious matter, and I hope that everyone will pay attention and join us in demanding no cuts, no caps for Medicaid. And I know there is this, uh, and you've written an op-ed piece for the uh, Washington Post, no, for The Hill, I guess it was, about a, an upcoming case in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, that case actually um, had already been decided. It was oh, I see. It was, okay. a, it was a unanimous decision that dealt with the provision of uh, educational benefits to students who are on the autism spectrum. And it is a very firm statement from the Supreme Court that de minimis education for students with disabilities is not enough and that educating students with disabilities is something that every student, regardless of their disability, is entitled to and should receive under the federal legislation called the IDEA. And was it, this was decided how recently? This was actually decided during the confirmation process for our newest Supreme Court justice, and it was a case that came out of his circuit and a decision that, that he wrote that was reversed so that the uh, provisions for the IEP, uh, the education plan for the student, um, could now be enforced. But I, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that at the appellate level, Gorsuch was opposed to this? He was, that's correct. Right. Um, so what does that mean for having Gorsuch now in the Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court ruled with unanimity, and that is a very significant message um, to schools around the country, to the government, and hopefully to the Trump administration, um, that students with disabilities matter. Um, but the, the politics and the way in the which the decision was written um, at the circuit level, which was very narrow, uh, is perhaps an indication of the way that uh, Justice Gorsuch may I, I seek to rule say, the future. Right. That, that, that must raise some concerns in your mind and the mind of the disabled community, if you can use that phrase, of what to expect from Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. I have the deepest respect for Judge Gorsuch and uh, for his tremendous career and his intellect. But yes, I agree with you. <laughs> I am a firm believer in the inclusion revolution. And I believe that making opportunities equal for everyone, including and perhaps especially rising students with disabilities, is a, a key element of this process. It should be respected and protected. I remember um, Senator Tom Harkin as being a real champion uh, of uh, disabled Americans, and um, uh, and I believe in his own family, right? That, 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 but, but but just Tom Harkin did it because it was good for this country and good for America. Who are the who do you see today as the leaders, or the uh, uh, not 
you know, the leaders of the leaders in the Congress that you really are well, out out in front, you know, that you depend on, that you count on. I think we're Republican fortunate. or Democrat. I think we're fortunate in that there are many on both sides of the aisle who really believe yeah. passionately in this issue. Am I right about Harkin? Was you it? are right about Senator Harkin. He has a deafness in his family. Okay. He is an iconic leader of the national disability community. And even after his retirement, he has maintained that leadership and is someone that we all look to uh, in terms of the accomplishments that he's made. There are many, many up and coming, however, in Congress and in the Senate, we have representatives with disabilities. Tammy Duckworth, who is the junior senator from Illinois, is yes, an American right. war heroine. Yeah, uh, Lost both legs and the use of one arm in combat duty and served the no, Veterans Administration, then incredible. as a congresswoman, and now she's our junior senator. And she has stated with great emphasis that never a day will go by, that she does not consider the interests of every American, including Americans with disabilities. We have Senator Ted Kennedy Jr., someone who has lived pretty much his entire lifetime since he was 12 years old with a disability, stood and watched the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990, and he is currently the chairman of one of the largest nonprofit organizations that support Americans with disabilities. We also have people from across the aisle, Senator McCain, mm -hmm. has always deeply understood the issues of Americans with disabilities, and he has highlighted a very important fact, and that is that many Americans with disabilities face the challenges of disabilities because of their service to this great mm -hmm. nation. Right. That's a good right. point. No, you mentioned about combat. I was just thinking there are more and more today coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan with serious disabilities who are alive today because of the miracles of modern medicine, but still have these serious disabilities. And... Uh, and, and you know, here's John McCain from years ago, the Vietnam War. I mean, he, he is so active and, you know, and ran for president that people don't realize that uh, he, he was severely injured and still today. I mean, he can't, I don't think he can lift his arm up even to mm -hmm. comb his hair. Well, isn't this the message then of the inclusion, inclusion revolution? Yeah. That people with disabilities, they show us capability, just like every other American. So we should be included so that we can be part of the American dream. Yeah. Um, what are um, – so, so what – how politically involved uh, – I guess the question is, do you consider the disabled community as a political force and as it has it flexed its political muscle? And is there anything doing, you know, to – I'm so glad you asked me that question. Activate the group? Yeah. This is a remarkable time for the community of Americans with disabilities, both because we have just passed our first quarter century under the protections of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which means an entire generation has grown up under those protections and are beginning mm -hmm. to emerge as voters, as leaders, as members of the community. And also, since that represents the maturation of this final frontier, of the civil rights movement. We are at that point, like the suffragette movement, like the civil rights movements in the 1960s that created equal opportunities for Americans with diversity, like the LGBTQ community, where we are beginning to flex our political muscle. Now, there are 35 million Americans with disabilities 
we estimate who are eligible to vote. That's a substantial mm. portion mm-hmm. of the voting public. And in this last presidential election, disability issues were front and center for a couple of different reasons, partly because President Trump uh, elected to raise that issue when he mocked Serge Kabaleski, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the New York Times reporter who was seeking to ask him a question. Oh, wow, yeah. But more, I believe, because the other candidate, Hillary Clinton, really embraced the inclusion revolution. There were more than 450 Americans with disabilities as delegates at the Democratic National Convention. Is that right? Yeah. Was the most inclusive in history, even included for the first time a campaign button that featured Braille. Um, More people were able to participate in rallies across the country because of accommodations that were made with accessible seating. And the disability community showed up to raise money and hopefully to vote. But the point is, it doesn't matter whether those 35 million Americans voted for or against President Trump or Hillary Clinton. We are showing up. We are participating in society. And I believe in the future we will continue to do so in a way that promotes inclusion and supports those candidates for office that understand the value that we can add to this country. No, I mean, that, that's why I asked the question, because I see when you mentioned the numbers, 59 million, now 35 million who are, are eligible to vote, that, that is, it's a substantial population there and a, and a powerful political force if corralled, if, if focused, right, if, if directed in uh, and organized, and uh, uh, on the healthcare legislation, seems to me there's one one place where uh, you could have a you could have a, a major impact on the outcome of that legislation. I read this morning that the hospital associations around the country, some hospitals that have never been involved in po- lobbying or politics before, are really being heard right now, saying, "Wait a minute, if you pass this bill, you know we're not going to be able to take care of our population." Um, because of particularly emergency room costs. And so um, they've become a powerful force in this legislation. The disabled community, I think, um, maybe already is, but certainly could be. There yeah. are tremendous opportunities now for us to really um, become a voice. And it, it, it isn't just healthcare. It's it's everywhere. It's in education. Sure. It's in essential services like transportation. I listened uh, with great interest to those statistics about finding a parking spot since I'm a blind American. As you can imagine, that's something I never need to worry about. Sure. However, I rely on public transportation. Yes. And it's critically important that public transportation be made or be maintained as accessible for Americans with disabilities if we are truly going to participate in society. And the advances that are coming in transportation, the autonomous vehicle or the self-driving car, presents unbelievable opportunities for oh, independence wow. for people like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of those things are waiting for us, but this is what it's going to take. We have to make the inclusion revolution spread across this nation. We have to all ask ourselves, are we being inclusive? And if we're not, make sure that we are. We have to speak up and speak up loud right now against cuts and caps in Medicaid for inclusive health care that will allow every American to obtain health insurance, wellness, and live in the society, and to be sure that just as President Obama 
did. Opportunities are made for equal opportunities in education and in being part of American culture. Is there, I know you uh, said that you are part of the general public now supporting disability uh, rights. Uh, is there a website where people can follow um, one particular organization or follow the work of the disabled community or, or for uh, join in those friends or family or disabled Americans themselves who are joining us this morning? There are many. Where would you direct them? Many opportunities like that across the country. Um, I would uh, recommend that people look to the website of the American Association for People with Disabilities for general information about ways in which they can participate. Uh, we are part of a large number of collaborative efforts. I'm sure you remember with clarity the Women's March that occurred oh, yeah. on January in Washington, D.C. I was there. It was the largest representation of Americans with disabilities in history. And so we are working collaboratively across many organizations. There are other organizations, Disability Rights Education Defense Fund, Disability Rights Advocates. Uh, you can follow me, if you like, at JLS Advocate. And we regularly uh, post and discuss the issues and provide opportunities for people to show up and support us. But the most important thing right now is to speak to the senators yeah. who are making this monumentous decision that may inf impact the future for many ger generations of Americans with disabilities. Talk to your senators. Talk to other senators. Be sure that we get this message out, that Americans with disabilities want to be included, and that if we are included, life in America will be better for everyone. You're doing such great work. Uh, I want to be sure you have that. So Jenny, Jenny Lairstein, and it's on Twitter, at JLS advocate. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. We'll be joined next by Ali Watkins from Politico. Uh, get back on the politics of the day and some of the national security implications here on the Press Show. I'm not going to go into hypotheticals. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. video bill's commentary the best clips from the show all in one place youtube.com slash the bill press show happy thursday thursday july 13 uh, hello everybody great to see you the bill press show from washington dc where we start out joining you all across this great land of ours on uh, youtube on free speech tv and on wcpt out in chicago Brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, those good men and women of the AFGE, under uh, President J. David Cox. Getting up every day, proud to work for America every day, keeping our federal agencies uh, going. And you can find out more about their good work at their website, afge.org. Yes, uh, President, Ob uh, President Obama, I keep saying that. President Trump, I <laughs> wish, I wish, I wish, President Trump. <laughs> Taking off for Paris yesterday, leaving the Russian mess behind, or so he thought, but um, it'll still be waiting for him when he gets back. And Ali Watkins from Politico, national security correspondent, 
uh, with her take on the latest. Joining us in studio, hi Ali, nice to see you. Nice to see you too, Bill. So Donald Trump Jr. says it's a big nothing burger. Is it? Um, I think every national security correspondent in town would beg to differ because I don't think any of us have gotten sleep in the last, you know, 72 hours, um, least of all the folks at the New York Times. So a nothing burger is an interesting characterization. But you have to, I mean, you cannot get away from the fact is, right, a foreign government and, and an advers in this case, an adversary of the United States says, we've got dirt on your opponent that we want to give you to help your father get elected. That's got all kinds of national security implications. Yeah. Does it not? I, I mean, there's there are so many levels to even pull back from. I feel like the email chain happened like two years ago at this point. Um, but it's just been layer upon layer getting peeled away from this. I mean, first of all, you have um, – like you said, any any foreign government reaching out to offer opposition research, even an ally, should kind of raise some eyebrows and at the very least spark some kind of conversation of like, should we do this? Is this a good idea? What are the legal implications? Clearly that path was not followed in this situation. Right. If I could just interrupt for a second, because no, Congressman Dan Kildee, who was from Michigan, who was in a little earlier in the program, uh, raised another issue, which I hadn't thought about, but it's absolutely right, is that you also have to say to yourself, this is could this could be a big setup. This could be somebody who's really trying to trap me into doing something really dumb. I mean, as just anybody who I think who's covered Russia generally, that's always kind of in the back of your mind of like, you don't know what's true. And granted, you don't know that half the time with the U.S. government either. But, yeah, but particularly yeah. when you're talking about Russian intelligence or, or Russian government operations, it's the the notion of what is true and how you even find out if it's true. And are you being baited is a question. I, it's constantly in the back, I think, as a reporter, if you're talking to people on that side of the spectrum, you're, you're constantly asking, OK, how do I know this? How am I sure this is true? Is am I walking into something I don't fully understand the scope of? Um, and again, doesn't appear those questions were asked either, even outside of a national security perspective of like, what am I actually getting into here? Yeah. Um, so the big question, well, there's so many big questions, but uh, we've been focusing this morning on the timing um, of uh, and whether or not we can conclude that the candidate, Donald Trump, knew nothing at all, whether we should believe, as they want us to believe, that the candidate himself knew nothing at all about the email, about the meeting, about anything that came out of it. Yeah, I mean, we've entered, as of Tuesday, we entered, like, the proverbial Watergate, what did the president know, when did he know it phase of this. Um, And I think the question moving forward is going to be, like, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence suggesting, you know, there's there was that strange tweet that he sent out that day. There were, you know, a lot of things that he said around that time frame that is, when you start to match up the timelines, you're like, hmm, this looks interesting. Right. But interesting isn't going to stand up in any kind of official lawful investigation. Right. So, so that's going to be the question. So we have on, on, on June 3rd the email coming to Donald Trump Jr., from this publicist, uh, the Brit publicist, who said that Donald Trump's business, former business partner, 
um, met with a the crown prosecutor of Russia who told him, boy, I got some really hot stuff that's just destroy Hillary. And the question is, how do we get that to your dad? Uh, and um, this is, I'm reading from the email, part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. So that happens, and Donald Trump Jr. gets back and says, we love, if what you say it is, we love it. That's on the 3rd. On the 6th, uh, and he sets up the meeting to take place on the 9th. On the 6th, Donald Trump gets enough delegates through some other primary to say, okay, I've got enough to win the nomination. Uh, on the 7th, he gives the speech in Florida where he promises some juicy stuff on Hillary. Here he is. I am going to give a major speech on probably Monday of next week, and we're going to be discussing all of the things that have taken place with the Clintons. I think you're going to find it very informative and very, very interesting. <laughs> now, doesn't that kind of lead you to believe that maybe Donald Trump Jr. says, oh, Daddy, we got some really good stuff, and we're going to get it, and they're coming over with it, and... Uh... Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, like I said, there is a lot of circumstantial Dot, connect stuff. the dots, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's there, but it's, like I said, it's. I think the question yeah. is, like, when do you cross that threshold of it actually being a real problem for Trump himself? I think as we've kind of moved through this investigation, it's kind of become clear who is at serious risk of taking the fall. For a while, it was Manafort, who is certainly still in mm. that mix. Um, Kushner surfaced as a potential legal problem for Trump. And now we have Donald Jr. surfacing as a potential legal problem for Trump. But they're rotating around the outside of the actual candidate. Like, if you want to start throwing around the words impeachment, like, that's only going to happen if it actually, if there's clear evidence that links him to those people around him who are going to fall. Well, the one it you seems, met- I mean, it seems obvious that, that Trump probably knew about this stuff, but... Right. There's nothing there. I mean, we found the smoking gun of the of the communication with Russia to get the Hillary Clinton stuff with yeah. Donald Jr., but that doesn't tie back to Donald Trump. I think we could look at that as reasonable, rational people would say, Donald Trump probably knew about that, but that doesn't hold up. And the question, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but you mentioned Kushner, all right? Now, so, so Kushner is also, uh, he was in trouble before, but he's in trouble here. He was... On this email chain, copied on the emails by Donald Trump once he got his original email. And then he shows up at this meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and now McClatchy reports last night that one other aspect where Kushner could be involved, because he was in charge of the digital operation, and they're looking into whether, uh, in terms of where the Russians might want to put their resources, that Jared Kushner might have been giving them um, some direction, right? So maybe, maybe, maybe the one who's might be most at risk here because he was in so many his fingers in so many places and pies mm. was is Jared Kushner and the son-in-law very potentially the biggest problem for Trump is Kushner because of that orbit of people who are under legal scrutiny Kushner is the only one who continues to maintain a security clearance sponsored under Trump at least as far as we know and who is still involved in the White House I, I mean because obviously Donald Trump Jr. is Technically not. Technically not, whatever. (laughs) But Kushner is sitting in on these meetings as of, what, last week and has been attending these meetings and has a very large, very sensitive portfolio. Um, So as far as problems for Trump, Kushner, despite the fact that this was Donald Jr. who's having the emails, the fact that Kushner's copied, that Kushner's still in the Oval Office. um, I mean, people are just incredulous that this guy still 
is sitting in the situation room. You know? uh, and there's a report this morning, um, I've read somewhere, that uh, Trump's attorney, Kasowitz, is asking or demanding that they build a firewall between the president and Kushner and not let him talk, not let them talk anymore, certainly not talk about Russia. I do not envy that man's job. <laughs> Kasowitz? Yes, whatsoever. That I... <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> all right. So if you add them all up, as we've been trying to do this morning, and you add up, so now we're talking, we've got potential collusion, potential obstruction of justice, that's still out there, and potential violation of the emoluments clause with all these business dealings at all of his hotels and all the money that he's making, even we, as we reported earlier this morning, the State Department spending $15,000 to have a meeting at the Trump Hotel in Vancouver. You know, it's a big money maker. So we've got emoluments, collusion, obstruction of justice. Where does this all lead? I, I wish I had an answer, but every prediction I made on this in the last six months has been completely blown up. I mean, I think from... There's a lot circling around. Obviously, this stuff keeps coming up. There's a lot, of, like I said, a lot of circumstantial stuff. Yeah. I think, you know, the investigations in Congress and Mueller's special counsel investigation are, I think, where you're going to see any kind of movement. I find it hard to believe they get any kind of ball rolling in Congress with impeachment or otherwise without one of those at least being completed and finding something there. Right. And what's unclear to me is. W- who even knew this meeting happened? The Senate Intelligence Committee did not, from my understanding. And I think CNN reported that the FBI did not. So it appears that this all kind of started to come to light after not Jared Kushner, but Jared Kushner's lawyers refiled his SF-86 for clearance. Hmm. And that's kind of how this started to trickle out. So it, it's... Questions worth asking of like, well, if the FBI didn't know about this yet, were they going to know about it? Were they looking at it? It's just confusing to me why, if this was such... I, I know that there were rumors swirling that there was another controversial meeting, but the details of it, nobody who's supposed to be looking into it knew until right. the New York Times published right. it. So it is going to take time for all these things to to, to play out, even oh, though absolutely. it looks like pretty incriminating, pretty damning evidence, um, you know, that's 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 a long way from the conclusion of a special counsel's investigation or final report of a Senate Senate or House Intelligence Committee. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And frankly, I Which think Which means this what he calls the Russian mess or the witch hunt. I mean, it's not oh, going to go away. Oh, it's not going anywhere. Mm. I will be shocked if any of these I know that the Senate's goal at least is to have it wrapped by the end of the year. I will be shocked if it's wrapped by the end of the year. No way. Not for their lack of trying, but just I mean, how do you these? They're bombshells, like every two weeks. That's the thing. Yeah, that, that that that's the thing that we. I mean, even going back to when Devin Nunes was in the picture, right? Like, they couldn't get things done because so many new things just kept happening, and you sort of it changes the dynamic of everything that we already know when these things come out. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, like everything that they've already looked at, you have to go back and sort of reexamine and take a look at in the light of the fact that. Donald Trump Jr. actually took a meeting with the Russians. For example, Mike Pence, this whole time, has said there were no meetings with the Russians. He never met with the Russians. Never was a thing that he did. Last night, his spokesperson dodged the question like five times Mm -hmm. and did not say yes or no whether or not Mike Pence met with the Russians, which means he probably at some point met with Russians. Which is not necessarily 
criminal. No. Which isn't necessarily criminal, but when you spent this whole time saying there were no meetings with the Russians, whatever, now that sort of paints everything in a completely different Mike, light. Mike Pence even said, he told Chris Wallace, that this whole conversation was a distraction by Democrats to take, you know, again, as Donald Trump uses that same argument. Um, yeah. Take the attention away from the fact that they lost the election. Yes. I, this would have been a very easy, like if they had just said, you know what, we probably did meet with Russians, a lot of whom were like not problematic, but let's just go through our whole staff, figure out who met with who yeah. and get it out there. I mean, yeah. that was a bridge you should have crossed about four months ago, frankly. <laughs> right. but, and we're so past that at this point. But as far as uh, to the point of it, it taking a long time and that the Senate Intelligence Committee and the special counsel, et cetera, I, I don't. I think it's very frustrating, especially when you can see all this circumstantial stuff and you're like, how? Like, how is this email not damning enough? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if there is if, if there is really serious talk of some kind of impeachment or change to the presidency because of this Russia matter, the key is getting Republicans on board. And you're not going to do that when you're in a frenzy like this. So, you know, if the Senate Intelligence Committee turned around today and was like, okay, this is it, we're done, like, that's what we needed, you know, our investigation's over, we can impeach him, blah, 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 you're never going to get Republicans on board with that. But if you take an eight-month investigation and you put out this bipartisan, very clear report that shows a strategic, like, pragmatic process, I think that that's where you're going to start to see people, I don't know, have their, like, oh, maybe this was a problem (laughs) for the last eight months moment, you know? All right. Now, as a national security correspondent, when you look at this chaos and this uh, this total focus, right, and we've been talking about, like, this has been consuming the media, the administration, their time for months. What are the national security implications in terms of what does this do in terms of our standing around the world or our dealings with other countries? I mean, does it kind of get in the way, influence it? I mean, I think we saw it the at G20, picture. right? Like, it was a different... Just watching the interactions and watching how other world leaders interacted with President Trump and... He was the odd man out. It was really... It was almost, like, uh, uncomfortable. It was like watching one of those old Disney Channel high school cafeteria movies. You're just like, oh, my gosh, I am getting, like, secondary <laughs> embarrassment over this. It, it, it was strange. It was very, a weird place, I think, as for Americans to watch that. Um, mm-hmm. Although a lot, I mean, a lot of Trump supporters think that he walked out of that looking fantastic. Um, so there's also the issue of, you know, Russia's one country, and it is taking up all of the attention at, at, because it's a huge issue and it should have a lot of attention. But there's also all these other parts of the world that are spinning. Um, so, so it is a huge kind of time suck on everything else that the administration has to be dealing with as well. Um, so as far as like standing in the rest of the world, it's I, I have a hard time seeing it as a net positive. Um, as you know, yesterday, um, Donald Trump got away from the safe haven of Fox and Friends and decided that he was going to do a really tough interview with a very uh, tough probing journalist, namely uh, Reverend Pat Robertson and the <laughs> 700 Club. Uh, and he had some weird things to say about this whole idea that the Russians were trying to help him get elected is nonsense because Vladimir Putin would much rather have Hillary Clinton in the Oval Office than Donald Trump. Uh, here, here's how he makes that argument. If Hillary had won, our military would be decimated. Mm-hmm. 
uh, our energy would be much more expensive. That's what Putin doesn't like about me. <laughs> and that's why I say, why would he want me? Because from day one, I wanted a strong military. He doesn't want to see that. Mm -hmm. And from day one, I want fracking and everything else yeah. to get energy prices low and to create tremendous energy. Now, this is somewhat of a hypothetical, but we know Hillary Clinton, we know Donald Trump. In terms of dealing with Russia, which one would you think would be tougher on Russia? Uh, I mean, Clinton and Putin have a well-documented history. Like, there was... He has almost a personal disdain. I was going to say, a well-documented history of, of, of uh, very... Uh, uh, I, I hesitate to say not, hatred, but there is... Yeah, not like, positive feeling. No, yeah. like very, yeah. a lot of animosity yeah. there. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not going to go so far as to say Putin would have preferred Clinton, uh, obviously, or, or Trump. Um, but there's, if you're looking at both options strictly objectively, there's one that he definitely does not like working with. And there's another who is possibly an unknown. But I also think, like, and Trump has kind of continued this, I think, off-base analysis of this whole Russian operation. Like, it was the Russian operation was not built to be a Trump or Hillary choice. Like, that was not the goal. Like, the end game of Russia trying to manipulate the U.S. election was not to get Donald Trump in the Oval Office. It was to so the you know proverbial so chaos but also like undermine americans faith in their electoral process like if trump could show up like this and roll a grenade in the room i, I mean we're, we're still sitting here reeling and saying how did this happen how did this happen and that the how did this happen question that was their goal not like to get trump or to get clinton mm -hmm. in there you know e even if hillary clinton had won and if we all walked away with a are we sure that she, like, was, was everything solid? Did anybody get into these systems? Like, they still would have won. They still would have gotten exactly what they wanted. So, and and Trump has succeeded in a way of kind of getting us all to look at this through the lens of, you right. know, the Russians either wanted me or wanted Hillary. And that is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what their end game was. There was a bigger, bigger uh, goal, is yeah. what you're saying. Right. Well, that, but the, the solution to that is we're going to have a uh, cyber se security pact with the Russians and work together now. Yeah, that lasted for all of, what, about 30 seconds after <laughs> that tweet? Went, and then all of his own party was like, okay, let's, you know, I, I, Donald Trump called your that, office. That was classic. He put that out there. And then Rex Tillerson goes out and defends it and says how important it is. And then the same day, Donald Trump himself comes out and says, yeah, this is a stupid idea. We'll drop that. <laughs> I do believe it's important to have a dialogue, and if you don't have a dialogue, it's a lot of problems for our country and for their country. I think we need dialogue. We need dialogue with everybody. We need dialect. What dialect. is what dialect. is dialect? Dialect. Dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> we need dialogue with everybody. <laughs> dialogue. Well, but so the other the other tack that they take, and I know you've written about this, is it's not the meeting; it's who leaked the meeting. That's important, right? It's yes. not this. It's who leaked it. Um, Which. Have you ever seen that, first of all, a White House with so many leakers? I was going to say, like, the calls are coming from inside the house. Like, I don't know how to throw enough flags on this. It's like, it's stunning to me how. Uh, I mean, I wrote a story, uh, I guess, a week ago or so about how within the national security community, I have at least experienced a real buttoning down from sources you know there is this real fear this almost orwellian kind of paranoia even people who are not leaking secret stuff 
are just like I don't you know I don't even want to say hello right now because oh, I don't yeah. want to put huh. myself in the crosshairs. But call the White House. Oh, yeah. I mean, just from these stories that have written there, I'm not saying all of the stories came from the White House, but there's some of it that had to come from pretty close to the. I'd be circle. willing. I'd be willing to bet that the New York Times report, pardon me, on this meeting at Trump Tower with Don Jr. came right from the White House. Maybe from Steve Bannon. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, it's like Animal Farm over there. Right? I mean, unless who do they get it from? Unless some secretary at Trump Tower or something. And I mean, I'm, yeah, no. It's it's a really fascinating time to watch. This Did happen. Comey um, leak national security information in his memos? Uh, I mean, I am not yet convinced. That whole weird day news cycle thing was so confusing to me. I didn't understand what new had happened. Like, he had said that there were certain classified memos, but even after we kind of all ran around in circles for eight hours and we're like, oh my gosh, Jim Comey leaked classified information, we were still like, oh no, there was one memo that remained unclassified, which is presumably the one that he gave to the law professor. So I, I that was a very weird foray that I as I recall, Fox and Friends are the ones who said uh, that he had leaked classified information, and then Fox and Friends even admitted that they were wrong. Well, there was a story in one of yeah. the dailies about it, um, and I mean, it was it was the story was fine, but it was just I, I don't understand what the source of that was. It was strange. I'm glad it didn't last. Right. Well, what an exciting time, and what an exciting beat. I mean, it's never right? boring. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We'll see what breaks today. Ali Watkins from PoliticoPolitico.com. Of course, thank you so much Thanks for, for having coming me. in. Uh, that wraps it up for us today, folks, on this uh, July 13th, Thursday. John Allen here tomorrow. Have a great day. Come back for John Allen this on the Friday is edition. This the Bill Press Show.